This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 17th, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Jennifer Cousin Frankel talks with us about the long arc to schizophrenia. Can we detect early signs and somehow change the trajectory of this often debilitating disease? And Catherine Matisek from our online news site is here with a story on the evolution of writing. Why so many verticals? Why so many horizontals? Why not so many diagonals. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Juul Sous Vide by Chef Steps. You expect precision from your smart thermostat, your camera, even your drone. So why settle for less when you cook? Juul Sous Vide uses precise temperature control and their trademarked visual doneness guides to cook food exactly the way you want it. Jewel, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use the code magazine to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E, code magazine. Now we have Catherine Matisek, editor for our daily news site. She's here to talk about a recent online story. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, Sarah. This week we're going to talk about one story, and it's just a change in format, a little bit of a twist on things, and it's on the evolution or not of writing. Is language and writing often thought of as something that evolves like animals and plants, Catherine? Well, so this is a pretty interesting question that I put to a linguist friend of mine mm -hmm. uh, because I've always thought of language that way, um, but I wanted to know, do actual professionally trained linguists feel the same way? And what I found was pretty interesting because this person said, you know, there's discussion in the field right. of evolution 
And what he said to me is, you know, well, if you talk about it as, as a living thing, you know, or if you talk about it as evolving, doesn't that mean that we're thinking about it as a living thing? And mm-hmm. living things, you know, they 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 seek out food, they have metabolisms, <laughs> they reproduce, and they also respond to evolutionary pressure. And so this person said, well, it's, a, you know, it's an interesting exercise, and I think it's a trend in the field that people are talking about, you know, but when you say it is a living thing, thing, you know, you have to be really specific. But the key question is the one that I just mentioned, which is, do languages respond to outside pressure? Right. And that pressure in this case could be from the physical limitations of people as opposed mm-hmm. to, right. uh, you know, oh, this is a very popular way of writing. You know, yeah. I put hearts on my eyes. <laughs> I, I did that too in the fourth grade. I know. Um. I still do it. No. But um, do our preferences for things, you know, based on our body, you mm-hmm. know, visually affect certain aspects of written language? Yeah. You know, how much the way they look can be attributed mm-hmm. to these factors. So there are two major pressures uh, when it comes to writing systems. And one of those pressures is how easy is a script to write? So if you have a system that has a million bajillion different characters or letters that you have to memorize or, you know, that have really complicated ways of expressing, say, vowels, you know, that's going to be really, really hard for a writer to figure out and to write down. And so you want to have pretty early on some form of standardization that limits the number of forms that you have to memorize, but that also makes them more or less identical when different people are doing the writing. That's something that we can get around largely today with, you know, computerized uh, typing. But I think of that more of as a brain limitation, like how much of this stuff can I remember? What about Mm -hmm. physical, actual writing? So that's, that's another part. I'm very glad you're skipping skipping on. So this is still part of this writing constraint. It can also be limited by the materials that you have to do the writing. So a long time ago, um, if all you really have are tablets of clay and you're going to take your little cuneiform pen and stick them into the clay, that is really going to change the style of what's going on the tablet. Likewise, uh, if you're in Southeast Asia, you know, writing on uh, different types of leaves is pretty popular because, you know, there's not always a nice, fresh, hard animal skin available. And so what happens when you write on surfaces that wobble and jiggle Mm -hmm. is it's hard to make straight lines. So the letters tend to get a little bit rounder. Mm -hmm. And like I said, over time, you want to systemize things. So whatever is easy at the beginning usually gets baked in by the end. Now, that's the first constraint that's writing. The second one, and I'll be brief on this, is reading. How easy are things to read for the person on the other end? And there are lots of different ways you can make things easier to read at the level of sort of the letter or the character, and there are ways you can make them easier to read at higher levels. But the whole point is is that our cognitive systems, this is the point in this study, our cognitive systems are primed to be 
much quicker at identifying certain images than others. And two things that this author brought up, one is uh, the vertical and horizontal lines yeah. that you see a lot in nature. So say you're in the middle of a forest, there are a lot of you vertical know trees. vertical trees. And if you're on the savanna, there's the horizon line, you know, and you're looking to see what's coming over that horizon. Um, the other thing that we're – apparently our neurons fire faster when we see vertically symmetrical images. Imagine a human face. It's very similar on the right and the left sides. Right. So if you drew something on a piece of paper, folded the paper in half, and opened it up, you know, if it's, if it's the same on each side, that's something that expresses vertical symmetry. Right. And so – what happened in the research here was they said, well, how much of that, how much of that, mm -hmm. how our eyes and brain process the environment, how much of that shows in our written scripts? Right. What they wanted to do is they wanted to answer two questions. One is what features are common in scripts across the world? Right. And the other one is do these things evolve over time? Do they evolve over time to make it easier for the reader primarily? Right. Are there pressures that we humans impose on these writing systems that make them evolve over time and make them easier to use? And so the first thing they looked at, they wanted to know how many languages are primarily made up of horizontal and vertical lines. They also wanted to know how many languages have characters that are vertically symmetrical. And how far did they look? I mean, what languages were included in their data set? So that is a very good question because the data that you look at are always going to influence the outcome. I won't say bias. <laughs> that's right. I won't say determine, but I will certainly say influence. So they looked at 116 languages around the world in, I want to say it was five or six major regions. Mm -hmm. And that included, you know, Old World Europe, Southeast Asia, India. They focused on two types of written languages. One, which most readers are familiar with, is an alphabet right. in which Certain letters stand for certain sounds, and then you combine them all together. The other is very similar. It's called a syllabary. And this is something that languages like Korean use. And what it is is it's basically you're combining syllables into blocks. So instead of having one character representing a letter, you have it representing an entire syllable. And what all of this is excluding is those character-based uh, languages where a character stands for a word. So the sound isn't from the character. So you're getting close. What they excluded is uh, languages that use something called logographic systems. And this is like Chinese, in which you have combinations of sounds and images within the character that then combine with other characters to form words. The whole point is, is that these systems have thousands and thousands of characters. If you looked at Chinese, for example, there are some estimates that over the entire history of the language, there are something like 65,000 of these things. Okay. And so as a result, the researchers said, that's kind of a lot to analyze. We're not sure that, you know, that would be a good idea to include in the data set. 
the other reason they excluded these characters is because visually a lot of them are very complex. And so it's kind of hard to tease out the horizontal and vertical lines, uh, oblique lines, which are essentially, you know, diagonals. the lines, diagonals, um, diagonal lines. And, and they decided that that would be something that with their system of analysis, they just weren't going to be able to make proper comparisons. All right, let's get to the analysis. When they looked across all these languages, these ones that they're easy to digest in this particular mm-hmm. scenario, what did they find about horizontals and verticals? So the interesting thing that they found is across all 116 writing systems, and this covered 3,000 years of history, that about 61% of lines across all scripts were either horizontal or vertical, and that's much higher than chance would predict. Now, getting back to the whole vertical symmetry thing, they found that vertically symmetrical characters accounted for 70% of all symmetrical characters. Okay. So you, so Again, it's, it's a bias in the, exactly. yeah, yeah. In the data. And so what about over time? Were they able to detect a trend over time where things getting more vertical mm-hmm. or more horizontal as time went by? That is a great question. And that is something that this study really set out to dig into because a lot of theorists and linguists have said that this is what languages should do. This is what written forms should do over time. They found exactly the opposite. (laughs) And so what they did was they took these, you know, ancestor scripts and they took the baby scripts and they looked to see what, if any, changes were happening in terms of that, you know, vertical and horizontal orientation the presence of diagonal lines, and also whether things were vertically symmetrical or whether there was a bias there. And what they found was that really there was not a whole lot of difference. Mm. And so from that, they concluded that the forms of written language, once fixed, rarely evolve. In other words, the scribes who created them from the very beginning sort of baked these human preferences into the words or into the letters and characters themselves, but that after that, things didn't change a whole lot. Now, there's a good term for this, which is used in a lot of other social and economic systems, and it's called path dependence. And the idea is that once you set down a path, you go down that path without much change. And in writing systems, it's really easy to explain. Right, because if you make a change, it's harder to read your handwriting. Exactly, right? <laughs> I, I learn this whenever I come up with little fancy scripts that yeah. I put in notes that I leave for my husband. It's why calligraphy is so tiring. Oh, and so beautiful. Yeah. Okay, well, so if languages, scripts anyway, don't seem to be changing over time, what is type going to do to us? That fact that most of what we read is written on a keyboard. And I don't know about you, but my handwriting is is kind of deteriorating since grade school. Well, I, I think this is a great question to raise. I think it may be a slightly different issue yeah. in that, uh, you know, we're talking about pressures that are going to sort of, you know, we've already baked the language. You know, now we're just like, shellacking it or something, right? Because the idea is that if we are all using typewritten characters, you know, from now until, you know, our civilization goes bust, 
from now until then, we're going to be pooling from pre-selected items. We're not going to be inventing new things. So the idea that we're going to come up with some sort of new and evolving system from here is even less likely. Is even less likely. Yeah. What I will say, though, is that the, the devolution of, of handwriting, that's something that's common around the world. It's not just you. Okay. But if you want to get better. Yeah. No. <laughs> My hand gets tired. Yeah, mine does too. <laughs> All right, Catherine, thank you so much. Thanks, Sarah. Well, tell us what else is on the site this week. So we have a story on how mussels, the animals, not the fishy kind, the fishy kind. Well, they're not fishy, fish. fishy kind. They, they smell fishy. Um, how mussels are cleaning up New York City's dirty waterways, and another story on a new model that tries to predict what would happen if all Americans went vegan. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we have an explainer on how scientists are doing gene editing inside of people's bodies. And another story on how the National Defense Authorization Act impacts science. Catherine Matisik is an editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. Schizophrenia can be one of the most debilitating and stigmatized psychiatric diseases. And so far, there hasn't been much we can do to stop it from happening. Jennifer Cousin Frankel is here to talk about her story on the search for early signs of schizophrenia and what can be done once they are detected. Welcome, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. What makes it so hard to have this disease? I mean, I I call it, you know, after your story, debilitating and stigmatized. What makes it so different? The two factors that I think make it different are, are first of all, the types of symptoms that people with schizophrenia have. When we think of some other psychiatric illnesses like anxiety or depression, many of us who, who may not have those illnesses ourselves can still relate to them. We may still have experiences of feeling anxious or feeling depressed at times. So we can kind of understand to some degree, what people with those conditions are feeling themselves. And some of the the, the strongest or most striking features of schizophrenia, and the one that I'm writing about is psychosis, um, may feel more foreign to a lot of us, even though many people, kids in particular, do have some of these signs and don't go on to develop the disease. So they may not be as foreign as we think they are. But at the same time, you know, hearing voices, having hallucinations, um, being really disconnected from reality seems scarier because we don't understand it. So that's the first thing that's different. And I think the other is just that it's a really difficult disease to treat. And scientists are working really hard to come up with with new treatments, but it's tough. And you talk about kids a lot in this story. What when you talk about really young kids, what are some of the earliest signs? You know, my experience has been someone has a, a psychotic break. It's in their 20s, their late teens. What about in little kids? What what can we see in them? And what does it tell us about the likelihood of schizophrenia for them? One thing that's really interesting that's happened in recent years is that researchers have been looking at sort of this whole trajectory that they see moving towards illness, as you say, in the kind of teens, um, early 20s, young Mm -hmm. adult age. What they see in young kids is really nonspecific, really vague, you know, having unusual thoughts as a younger kid. And obviously, many kids have unusual thoughts, and that doesn't mean they're going to get sick later on. 
but this, some of those kids may be at a higher risk. And this is something we're still really working to understand, particularly in the younger age group. And some others include um, certain kinds of involuntary motor movements. There are also risk factors um, like um, having been abused that are associated with later disease. And some of these are associated with other psychiatric illnesses as well. They may not be specific to, to later psychosis, but they're, they're still real. They're just, they're just vague and they may only raise risk a little bit. Do we know anything about the biology of at this time in their life? Like what could prompt, you know, some of these early signs? I think with the younger kids, we really don't know a whole lot. Um, more work has been done with with teenagers, mm-hmm. and actually, a little more work has been done prenatally as well. So we know about certain certain prenatal risks, but that younger kind of school elementary school age group is really kind of a mystery. And people are trying to now um, study those kids more to the degree that they can, but it's it remains pretty mysterious. And what about kids in their they're preteens, they're teens. What kind of signs arise then? Yeah, so there it does get it does get clearer as kids get older, particularly with teenagers. I sort of tried in my story to distinguish between certain signs mm-hmm. that may be linked to later psychosis and then also risk factors that can be linked. So signs in in let's say like a 15-year-old could be withdrawing socially, withdrawing from friends, hearing voices, having sort of distorted thoughts, you know, thinking that people can read your mind or that people are wishing you harm, being depressed or having anxiety, having disturbed sleep, having trouble with schoolwork. Those are all signs that can indicate that someone is at a higher risk of psychosis. And then there are separately, there are certain risk factors, like people have suspected that smoking marijuana may be a risk factor in someone who may already be predisposed. So not everybody who smokes marijuana obviously later gets psychosis, but it it may be a risk factor that sort of amplifies your risk if you're already at this kind of baseline higher risk. So with these signs and signals and risk factors in hand, the hope is to recruit people early and see if interventions, you know, pharmaceutical or otherwise, can stop progression to psychosis and and then maybe schizophrenia. Is that actually happening? Like, who is being recruited and what kinds of treatments are being tried on them? Yeah, so it's really tricky. I mean, you can understand how once we're able to to figure out who might be at risk, the next thing everyone's going to think about is preventing this disease. Now, it's tricky because as with many diseases where we think about risk, a lot of the people who have the risk factors, like a lot of people with high cholesterol, are never going to have a heart attack. Right. And some of them will have a heart attack, but many won't. And, you know, we don't always understand why why that is. But that's a that's an issue across medicine and across d- disease prevention is you always have more people with those risk factors than will ever get the disease. And it's an issue here. And here it's difficult because we're still trying to refine our risk prediction. And um, we're dealing with kids in many cases, Mm -hmm. and we're dealing with a disease that's very difficult. So there are a lot of different factors that make it tough. But for some people, that's even more of a reason to try and prevent it. So there is an effort to start up some, some trials to try and study different strategies as preventions. And, and one thing that a lot of people are doing is they're, they're using strategies that may also treat the symptoms that teenagers have now. So that sort of makes it ethically, ethically easier because you're not just giving everyone a treatment that may only benefit some of them, the people who later get sick. You're helping them with the symptoms they have now and also potentially 
hopefully preventing or delaying disease in some people. Okay. And what about cognitive therapy? Is that something that's being tried? Yes. So cognitive behavioral therapy is actually one of the few therapies that's been tested in clinical trials. It does appear to have an effect in people at risk. There have been several trials that have shown that it can reduce the risk of developing psychosis by about 50% in the following year, although we don't know whether it's delaying disease um, or preventing it. Delaying it would still be valuable, but preventing it would be even more exciting. And it is recommended now for, for teenagers older teenagers who are kind of in that high risk group that we are able to um, to identify. And there is hope that it may be useful. But, you know, again, we, we don't know enough. We don't know what it's doing to disease biology. Um, you know, we don't understand enough about its effects, but it is something that people are hopeful about and are testing. Well, circling back to biology for a second, are any of the treatments that are being tried based on how we understand this disease to happen, what the processes are in the body? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the brain is so complicated, and that's <laughs> one reason why it's been really hard to bring prevention to psychiatry in general. Right. You said how many genes were, were they looking at for this? Yeah, I mean, they think there are, you know, hundreds or thousands of genes, and it's, you know, everyone kind of thinks of the brain as mm -hmm. being a really complicated organ compared to, you know, most or every other organ in the body. So that's that's a reason why it's just been really tough to make this happen. It's complicated. But yes, I think one of the interesting trials that I came across in my story is a, is a drug trial. Most of the trials are not drug trials that are being tested right now, but there is a, a drug trial, a pharmaceutical trial that is just starting up. It's run by a company in Germany. That drug is supposed to strengthen the signaling of glutamate, and that's a neurotransmitter that doesn't work properly in people who have schizophrenia and also doesn't seem to work properly in people who are at risk. Mm -hmm. So the company is trying that, just starting to try that in, in people who are at very high risk based on the severity of their symptoms for psychosis. So they're testing it as a preventive. But I would say that a lot of the, a lot of the approaches are not necessarily deeply grounded in the biology of the disease, which we're also still figuring out. It's, there's sort of these different pieces and we're trying to pull them together, but it's still, um, it's still a work in progress. All right. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you. Jennifer is a staff writer for Science. She writes about preventing psychosis in this week's issue. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.